Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome once again to another episode of the So I Married a Horror Fan podcast. Good morning, good afternoon, and if I don't see you, good evening. Okay. Uh, welcome once again. This is episode number 58. Sure. Or it's just episode four of season two. Yeah, episode uh, four. No. Yeah, episode one, two, three, four. Oh, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, I was we, counting Scream. Yeah, because we don't. Scream's not a canonical episode. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's episode four of season two, episode 58 overall. How is everyone doing? I hope everyone's keeping well, staying safe, doing all that good stuff that they are to avoid Omicron, Unicron, Optimus Prime, whatever fucking variant we're up to now. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to give a quick shout out to all of our new followers because there have been some of you over the last couple of weeks. I hope you've been enjoying what you've been hearing. Uh, I hope you've really stick around. Thanks for checking us out. And I want to say a big thank you to everybody who checked out our episode on Scream 2022, aka Scream 5, aka 5 Cream, because that is now our second highest played episode of all time. So endless love and eternal gratitude to everyone that checked out that bad boy. Um, and also thank you once again for everyone that's been sticking with us this month through Foreign Language Horror Month. Um, for those of you that haven't seen, if you are a bit behind on episodes, we dropped an episode of Pan's Labyrinth this month, Brotherhood of the Wolf, Train to Busan. We did a 5x5 five five on our top five supporting horror characters. And then, as I said, we dropped an episode on Scream 5, as well as our very first episode of our new monthly show, Crossing the Stream, which was on Werewolves Within. Mm. However, we're not talking about any of those movies in this episode in this movie episode episode movie movie episode we are talking about the 2002 j horror film dark water which is now 20 years old ludicrous it is ludicrous cool so before we get into it uh, we've talked about J-horror on the podcast before, and last week we did a bit of K-horror. Mm-hmm. Um, what are what are your thoughts and feelings on sort of J-horror? Um, I haven't seen a lot of J-horror. Um, I've seen uh, Ringu, mm-hmm. and I've seen Juwon. Pingu on a Ringu. Pingu on a Ringu and Juwon, and um, yeah... Do you remember? They scared me a lot. Do you remember the J horror boom and then the J horror remake boom of the early noughties? Or is that a bit before your time, kind of? A little bit before my time. Because I remember, I remember the J horror boom. Well, I remember the like Asian extreme J horror and like foreign language horror boom. It sort of came in the late nineties, early two thousands. And then from sort of 2003 onwards was when we went through that massive spate of them remaking like every available Japanese horror property for the like American market. Incidentally enough, the movie we're talking about today, Dark Water, came out in 2002. The English language remake in America of The Ring came Mm -hmm. out the same year. And that was the one that really kicked it all off. And then we had remakes of like Shutter, The Eye fucking uh the grudge they've done several different remakes of the grudge or versions of the grudge mm. and there's a now a tv series on netflix which is based mm-hmm. on the grudge on the origins is it yeah and then we had like remake of this we had the remake of 
there was another one, Pulse, which was uh, an, another one mm. that they remade. Oh, well, we're about Japanese remakes. Yeah, because they were uh, They remade... Oh, I don't... This is the problem, is because they basically remade a bunch of um, Asian cinema. Because they remade Tale of Two Sisters as yeah. well. They remade The Eye. Old Boy got remade at some Old point. Old Boy got remade. Um, Bangkok Dangerous got remade. Mm-hmm. They for remade, some weird reason. They remade the Infernal Affairs trilogy with your boy Tony Lung into uh, The Departed. Oh, is there really? I didn't yeah, know that. The, the Scorsese film The Departed is like essentially a truncated version of the Infernal Affairs trilogy, yeah. uh, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they went through a massive phase of like remaking a fuck ton. See, this is what really Asian movies offends me. Is obviously Hollywood mm-hmm. took note of Japanese horror mm-hmm. and basically fell in love with it. And like, I think there was a real thing with like J horror, and I've said this before on previous episodes. Because in this country, it was so hard. It for a while it we were getting get it like years it. and years after it came out. Yeah, like, because you could only get it for a while on imports or bootlegs or whatever. Um, by the time it made its way over here, we were already nuts deep in fucking them already acquiring it to be remade. I think the problem is, like, it's a lot like anything. Hollywood or, like, the music industry will go, I like that thing. But rather than respecting that thing and hiring the people that made that thing to then come and do other things with a bigger budget or give them more creative freedom and give them jobs in Hollywood... They just went, nah, 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 nah. We're going to steal that and then remake it for English people with English people. Oh, Which American. I've always found, yeah, or like, yeah, I've always found it massively offensive that rather than seeing the talent that was on display and hiring them to make more things, they just wholesale stole all their ideas. I mean, they remake. didn't really steal them. They did, they did like retain the rights to make these things. Yeah, I know, but it's still like... Oh, yeah, like, it was unnecessary. You could have just watched the original. And the thing is, as well, is they remade them, and they remade them poorly because they they basically would buy the rights because they liked the original Japanese, or not always the case, to be fair, or original film in general, because it happens with a lot of um, a lot of foreign cinema. And then they will Americanise it. Mm-hmm. So, like, they remade Dark Water. Mm-hmm. I believe i've seen the american remake but it was a very 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 long time ago but from my assumptions of this film is they went i like this we shall remake it and then basically added jump scares and like more american style horror yeah that was the other thing about the j remake trend was everything had really shit cgi yes everything had like really shit like uh fucking filters put on it to make it look like they basically took and we'll get into the more of the filming style of these movies in a moment, but they basically took what they wanted the look. They wanted the movies to look like the original J-horror movies, but instead of not shooting always, it... Not always sh- true, because The Ring, they really made super glossy. Yeah, but that's what I mean. There's certain scenes in The Ring where they tried to make it look dark like the original, but they did it with a filter on high-end cameras and CGI rather than just fucking filming it the same way that they made the original. Because yeah. that scene, the scene where the guy, is it Scott Speedman, the geezer from Underworld, who plays mm-hmm. the hybrid, he's like fucking running through the room and the girl crawls out the TV for the first time. Mm-hmm. Like, that is all filmed in a really dark colour palette because they wanted it to make it look like the OG movie. But they filmed it on, like, HD cameras. And it's like, yeah. what the fuck are you doing? 
Interestingly enough, the only, at the time when this boom happened, mm. the only director whose work they didn't tap up to remake was the only one that got invited into mainstream Hollywood to make shit was fucking Takashi Miike. Mm. Because they went, bro, your shit's too fucking weird for us to remake. However, we like you. And they got him to do an episode of Masters of Horror, which mm. was obviously and inevitably banned. And Eli Roth literally could not stop sucking his dick when he made, well, like when he was in interviews. Every time he got interviewed, he was like, "Yeah, man, I love audition. I love audition. I've 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 seen so many interviews with that dude where he's like, audition's the best film ever." And uh, Tarantino as well. But like, okay. he was the only one who kind of got invited over to like the American side of things to yeah. like work with people. And he's arguably the weirdest of them all. <laughs> Which is fucking weird. But yeah, like, I love J-horror, but I'm not a real fan of the J-horror remake trend because I just think it was really fucking lazy. I just think that they took these really great ideas from these really great creative filmmakers and then just dumbed them down into like... CGI laden fucking jump scare bullshit. Indeed. Which is what Hollywood does. Indeed. Especially with this movie as well. Have you seen the remake of Dark War? I think so, but I think it was a very, very, very long with, time. With uh, Jennifer Connelly and Tim Roth in it. Mm. But yeah, um, should we should we get into this movie? Yeah. So, as Simon said, we are covering Dark Water. Uh, released in two thousand and two. Uh, directed by okay I'm going to apologise now because I've got perhaps a lot of Japanese names my Japanese is very slim on the ground I did this when we did Battle Royale and I'm just going to apologise now not great with Japanese is it Hideo Nakata? I think it's Haido Haido Nakata Uh, written by okay so it was originally written by Koji Suzuki Mm -hmm. who wrote the book who also wrote uh, the Ring series so he had this So, one, two, three, four, five, six ring books that he wrote that the films are based on. Because the story from the book has got a different title, hasn't it? Uh, so the book is called Dark Water. Um, that's what the actual book is called, but the book is a series of short stories. Mm-hmm. So this is... I can't think what this actual short story is called that this one is based off of. Um, it's the first one in the... Thing. Uh, floating water is what mm-hmm. the story is called but the book itself is called Dark Water but it's a book of short stories mm-hmm. um, where was I yeah um, and then it was adapted to the screen screenplay by uh, Takashi oh my god Takashigi Chissi and Haido Nakata oh that was a really difficult name to pronounce um, and then cast wise we have I will tell you what I'm going to refer to them as as well because I will forget their character names uh, so we have uh, Hitomi Kuroki as Yoshimi Matsubara we have Ryo Kano as Ikuko Matsubara so Yoshimi will be mum mm-hmm. and Ikuko will be What's that supposed to be called? Her? Ikucha. Ikucha. Because it's what she gets called throughout the entire film. Is that the six year old version of the her? The six year old version of her, yes. Uh, we then have uh, Mary Oguchi, who plays Mitsuko Kawaii, who I will call Mitsuko because that's a really easy name to remember. And then we also have Asami Mitsukawa, who plays a uh, 16 year old Ik- um, Ikuko. Ikuko. 
And then that's kind of it. There's the old guy that uh, there's the two guys that work in the apartment. There's the young nerdy guy and then there's the old guy. Um, the young guy does not work in the apartment building. He's the lawyer. Yeah. And I don't what, know. The nerdy what... guy with the glasses, the yeah. Urkel looking motherfucker. Pretty sure he is the lawyer or one of the lawyers because she mm-hmm. runs. She meets him when she's um, going for mediation. Um, and I don't know what his character name is, so I can't tell you who plays yeah, him. Because he's the guy that lets her into the apartment, isn't he, with the striped t-shirt. Oh, the real estate agent. Yeah, that's Oh, the yeah, guy so that's um, Ota, who's um, Yu Tokui. And there's Mr. Fi- Fiyuama. Uh, Kamiya, who's the, the apartment Kamiya. manager, who is played by Iseo Yatsu. He's the funniest guy in the whole movie. Mm. He's such a grumpy old man who yells at the cloud. Yeah. And then kind of all of the other cast are basically side characters. Did you mention ex-husband? No, I didn't. So the ex-husband, who is Kunio Hamada, is played by Fumio Koenata. He's an asshole. He is an asshole. Um, But yeah, basically everyone else, even the ex-husband is like a really minor role. He only pops up like three times in the whole film. Um... So yeah, there's it's a very 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 small cast mm-hmm. for this film, um, and I think that's kind of it cast wise. Um, you just have a quick look, see. Um, yeah, it's kind of it. Uh, box office, it made one point four million. Nice. I don't know what the budget was though. I don't know. I've accessed that information. Nowhere does it tell me what the budget of this film was. They basically went, nah, you don't really need to know that. Probably quite low. I feel like with a lot of J-horror, it is quite a small budget. Yeah, and I think with a lot of the uh, English remakes, they had small budgets as well. Like They had like budgets of like 15 million or something stupid like that. Because a lot of them had like but, one big star, and then yeah. like everyone else in the cast. Was but like, what I'm saying is, like you're saying, oh, 15 million. I mean, like these movies were made on like a shoestring budget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they're not. I don't think any of the actors in this are like big name actors. No, but I think that really and helps. Also they keep the cast quite small. <clears throat> See, I think that helps. Like I said to you when we were watching this, the thing I love about J horror, and especially like certain J horror. Mm is the way that it's filmed. Because they have, like, super low production values. Everything is filmed on, like, a video camera that mm-hmm. you could buy from, like, your local electronic shop. Yeah. And, like... I mean, I don't know if that is actually true. Like, it, it's probably quite the... I mean, this was made in, what, 2002? Mm-hmm. So we're looking at, like, 20 years ago. Like, films didn't look as good as they do now then anyway yeah but like and I mean, we always say like uh, j-horror does look like it was filmed on like a steady cam that was bought for like 20 quid from like a videotape shop but i don't entirely think that's always true i think sometimes they are made with like pretty decent equipment mm-hmm. it's just that you have a look to them and yeah. i think that look is on purpose that's what i was gonna say i wondered if it was like a budgetary thing or if it was a style like a stylistic choice but, like, I think that it works. Like I said to you, like, there's a real feeling when you watch J-horror movies. It's kind of like when you watch, like, VHS. Like, the VHS movies. Even though they're not found footage, they all have that look of everything is really dimly lit. No famous actors are in it. They all look like they're, they're filmed really cheaply. 
but it adds to the tension because it feels like when you're watching them that you're watching something that you shouldn't be watching and that puts you like in your head immediately on edge mm. because you're like this is fucked up like i should not be watching this yeah and because they're all like deliberately paced and they don't have any special effects or like any big name stars yeah you're just like oh shit man like i f- you immediately feel uneasy and like like that ralph wigger meme like Haha, i'm in danger yeah <laughs> like you're just like oh some shit is about to go down but him you because I can remember, like, when we were watching this. You said you'd seen this before, hadn't you? Yes. Um, and I've also read the book it's based on. Okay. Like, what were your first impressions when you saw the film? Do you remember, I like, the first no time you idea. saw it? Look, I have really vague recollections. Like, I know I've seen it. Mm-hmm. But I don't really remember watching it. I know, the only reason I know I've seen it is because I know I've read the book. Like, I remember reading the book. Yeah. Which means that I would have sat and watched the film. Yeah. See, I remember the first time I saw it. I remember being really freaked out by it. Mm. I remember someone recommending it to me and buying it and being like, I'm going to watch this. And then I was like, nah, man, Mm. I don't like this. This is creepy. I remember the first time I saw it, I found it scarier than The Ring. Because I'm one of those rare, weird people that I'm not really phased by The Ring. Like, the idea of The Ring doesn't really frighten me. Mm. Um, But I remember this film frightening me. And I think I said it to you last year when we did the episode on our 5x5 foreign language films. When we used to live in our old house and we had that fucking patch of mould in our bedroom in the corner and it seemed to be getting bigger and bigger, the first thing I thought of was this fucking movie. Hmm. And like, I think, again, like this is the genius of J-horror. J-horror particularly makes you afraid of things that you shouldn't be afraid of. Like when we were talking about this earlier, like Shutter is all about like haunted photos. Pulse is about like a haunted like internet signal. Then you've got like um, the eye, which is about like eye transplants. Mm. And they make you like the ring, obviously with the VHS tape. They make you afraid of fucking things that you shouldn't be afraid of. Mm. And I'm like, I should not be looking at a patch of mold on my wall, thinking, shit, man, some fucking water ghost is gonna fuck my shit up. Mm. But that's what this movie does. And I think that's the great thing about like this movie is it, it's not not a lot happens in it. No. But you are constantly waiting for something to happen. Mm. And it almost happens in real time. Like you're kind of solving the mystery at the same time as what the protagonists are. Yeah. Which is very clever storytelling. And like the thing that I hate is like in the American remake, it's all like Here's some fucking jump scares. Here's some some fucking spooky bullshit to make you... They spoon feed the audience. They're like, there is a fucking kid in that fucking water tank and she is dead. And here's a bunch of visions of this dead kid telling you that in 20 minutes time, you are going to discover there is a dead kid in that water tank. Whereas this movie is like, no, man, we trust you. We trust you. Like, we fed you this thing of like, there's a little girl who's gone missing and there is a patch of water in this house and somehow... They're linked. They're linked. But we will tell you in the last 20 minutes of the movie. And until then, good luck trying not to crap your pants. <laughs> mm. Do you find it scary? Do you think it is a scary film? So it's really interesting. I remember when I was younger, I was really freaked out by the idea of it. And I don't know if it's like an, now I'm a grown up, it's different. Or also, um, I'm going to mention it really 
really really briefly um but obviously the uh quite famous at this point uh case of um elisa lam yeah obviously it like actually happened obviously there wasn't a ghost child that she was following <laughs> but like the the water tank on the the roof thing actually happened so i don't i feel like the f- that has made it slightly less scary for me mm-hmm. Because it just seems really sad now. Like, obviously, this movie predates the Elisa Lam case by a very long time. Like, nine years? Uh, So, this film came out in 2002. The Elisa Lam case happened in 2013. Yeah, so, like, 11 years. So, 11 years. And the book came out in 96. Mm. So, like, this predates it by a very long time. But I think now it just seems a lot more sad. Yeah. Because back when it first came out, like I didn't see it until probably like twenty fourteen, twenty fifteen. Mm-hmm. Um, back when it like I first saw it, it was terrifying, and it's like, oh my god, that's so scary! Like, could you imagine that happening? And like now, I'm aware, very aware of her case, and like it did happen, and it's it's just really sad. I think also it plays into like, without going like over the top, mm. it plays into like the idea of like Japanese water ghosts. And like things a like that as well, bit, because yeah. like there is the real kind of like with a lot of J horror, there is that real sense of like actual mythology yeah. of like going into it as well. And like this is the other thing as well. Like the movie never beats you over the head with symbolism. It never. So, be- it gives you just enough to draw your own conclusions. So with this movie, it happened when I first watched it, and I have memories of that. And it happened again this time. Because I have read the story it's based on it, the ending of this movie really disappoints me. Mm-hmm. So, spoilers for the book, for the short story, if ever you do get around to reading it. But, I mean, the, the film tells you what's going to happen anyway. Um, so, at the end of the story... So, obviously, in the film, we see the ghost. She holds mum hostage. Yeah. And... She calls her mama, which is well creepy, with her creepy little ghost hands. She's like, Mama. Well, yeah, because she was abandoned by her mum. Yeah. Like, that's what happened to her. Um, and obviously, when went missing, she fell into the, the she's, water tank. She's a little creep. Um, it's horrible. But um, obviously, like, she keeps hold of Mama and um, Iku-chan leaves. She grows up, comes back years later. So in the book, um, it's kind of fed to you with kind of you never actually know what's real or not because mm-hmm. they never find the body. Yeah. They never actually see her ghost, like, at the end of the film. So the, the book ends with her, with mum and Iku-chan leaving mm-hmm. and moving out. And that's how the, it ends. And literally it kind of ends, and, like, one of the closing lines of the book is, like, I never really know whether it was real or a dream. And I don't know what was truly happening. Yeah. And that is far more terrifying to me. Of like the idea of like, they never know whether it was real or not, or whether they were <clears> just slowly going insane living in this tiny apartment. Yeah. Cause that's the thing. Like, and that's, that's one of the frustrating plot threads in the movie because they flat out say at the beginning that the mother had a psychiatric break. Like, mm years before she met her husband because it's one of the things that his lawyers are trying to use as like leverage mm. to get him custody and then they mention that she was sleepwalking and you kind of do have these like moments throughout the film where she isn't really sure mm. but the film never plays it up it never plays up like is she is she having another psychotic break is the stress of her divorce and being with her daughter 
like causing her to. Yeah, have... I don't. I don't know if in the book it ever mentions. It's been a very, 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 very long time since I read it. I don't know if it ever mentions her having a psychotic break, but that mm-hmm. was always more terrifying to me of like not knowing whether it was a real or not because yeah. it brings in the question of can you even trust your own. And that would have been a really eyes. interesting way for the film for to the go. film to end. Yeah. yeah. But obviously they don't do that. They do play into their, oh, it was a ghost and you're being haunted and and you have to sacrifice yourself to save your daughter. Which is a fine ending, but yeah. I just feel like the book ending was a far superior ending. I really want to reread the book now. I might have to find a, find a copy of it or something. I also love the way that this movie ends in comparison to the remake. Because the movie ends with obviously the adult version, oh, well, the teen the version of yeah, she's like sixteen talking to her mum. And then you see a brief flash of... Mitsuko behind her and that's it whereas in the remake it's a lot more uh, prominent like Jennifer Connelly's in her washroom and she turns around and the girl's there in the yellow jacket with the red bag and she actually sees a vision that's a fucking well she's got a red coat hasn't she in the American it's it's an actual jump scare like they do the whole we're ending the movie on a jump scare bullshit which is like I really like how mediative the ending of this movie is. Well, because that's the really interesting thing when you get to this end of the movie. Because obviously when it all happened, Iku-chan was six. Mm-hmm. And she's 16 at the end of the film when we finally see her for the 10 years later moment. And she's kind of... Obviously she doesn't remember what happened because she she sees, she sees she meets her mum and she says to her, like, oh, I never knew you were here. Like, if I'd have known, I'd have visited, like... Um, you know, Dad never told me that you were like living here. Yeah. Um, like, oh, I can move out. Like, I can come and live with you. I'll tell Dad. Yeah, because the mum never leaves the apartment, does she? She's haunting it. Yeah. Yeah. So the mum's haunting the apartment. The mum is dead at the end of yeah. the film. Yeah. Because that's not entirely clear. Like, I feel like that might maybe is a subtitle thing, but it's not exactly clear that the mum is in fact dead at the end of the film. Yeah, she can never leave. Um. And yeah, it's really interesting because obviously it, it it heavily implies that um, Ikuchan does not remember what happened. Yeah. And doesn't remember that her mum is basically trapped in this apartment complex and like had sacrificed herself to save her. Yeah, like the trauma part of her brain is just Well, I don't like, know if it's just that or if it's just out. that she was six and your mm. memories of when you were six are very slim. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, because it's quite... It's implied in the ending of the film and I think this is one of the best things that this film does is that it only ever implies it is it implies that the mother goes and drowns in the water tank as well yeah because it kind of the last time we see the mum is in the elevator and the light flashes to seven which is the roof access yeah and then you never really find out what happened to it it's also never mentioned if they find her if they found Mitsuko's body mm-hmm. Like, none of that is ever addressed. So, like, my, my general thought of it is that they're both still in that tank on the top of the building. And it's implied that they are, because when her mum gets her a glass of water at the end of the film, the water's a really murky brown. Yeah. So it is very interesting, and I would be quite interested to find out what actually happened. But I like they kind of leave that on this whole, well, we'll never really know what, what happened to yeah. them. Yeah, it's... um. It's a very interesting way to leave things, and like the thing, the thing with this movie is it, it it's such a like interest, like like all a lot of Japanese and Asian cinema is. It's more of a like thinking man's horror, I guess. It's more it more wants to put you on edge, but then think about certain things. Mm-hmm. 
rather than just like here's a fucking jump scare for some bullshit and like I find that with a lot of like these types of movies it leaves you with like all of these questions of like did she die like like how much does she remember like what happened to the little girl ghost like in sacrificing herself does does the mum take Mitsuko's place now as the sole person that haunt like has she let her has the little girl's soul gone free because so, she's been replaced by her and stuff like that? And this and, is the interesting thing because I read the, the the ending of this film for me is that she stayed there. So basically, Mitsuko had attached herself to Ikuchan mm-hmm. because she becomes her imaginary friend. Yeah. And the mum sacrifices herself to stay there with Mitsuko so that she will leave. Ikuchan alone. Yeah. Because the last line of the movie is that my mum had been there all along protecting me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think you're supposed to read it as her mum had sacrificed herself so that Mitsuko would let Ikuchan leave. Mm-hmm. And Mitsuko um, and her mum haunt the place together. <laughs> yeah, are like mother and daughter, and they both still reside in the flats because the flats are obviously abandoned at the end of the mm-hmm. film. So, which is again really interesting because Ikuchan says like, "Oh, I could come and live with you," and like you look at the building and it's quite obvious that this place is abandoned. So it's really interesting that her brain hasn't gone. Well, this is really weird. Like nobody else is here. Yeah. Like it's obviously abandoned, and then there's just this one flat that's still perfect. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the other subsection of it of is it the ending a dream? Mm, true. True. Is it like her the trauma part of her brain again? envisioning a future where she goes and spends time with her mum. I don't know. I think I think the end is supposed to be closure. Yeah. I it, don't think it's supposed... Well, not... It's really weird because so... It's a very ambiguous it's ending. It's a very ambiguous ending. And I think this is something that this film does really, really well, is that... And I think it happens with a lot of J-horror, but I haven't seen that much J-horror in all this. Like, they don't tend to spoon-feed you an ending. They're not like, oh, and they all lived happily ever, or... Oh, and they all died. It's all like, and then we don't know. Look, because there's so many things that are left unaddressed at the end of this film that normally would bug me, but Mm. I'm totally fine with it because I like this has a really ambiguous ending. And I think it's because the film is very, it's paced out. It's not a like jump scary film. It is kind of, it's kind of a meditation on like the idea of separation and what it means to be a parent and like the starting again yeah um you know dealing with your own brain mm-hmm. as well um and I really love that about this film yeah I think like the thing that the the movie does very well is as you say it's not about jump scares it's like it's building that tension it's mm-hmm. like like the way you see the like water spot or the mold grow, on, grow the on the wall, yeah. And there's like bits where the score gets completely stripped out, and all you can hear is the dripping mm-hmm. of the water. water from the like ceiling and stuff like that. And like this is another thing I mentioned to you when we watch it. And it's like I think it's the thing I mentioned a lot about J Horror is the scores are very minimal and they're very stark. And they don't. There are a lot of scenes in this movie where they don't. They strip the score out completely. And they just linger on the sounds that are in the scene. Yeah. So, like, the humming of something in the background, like an electrical cable, or, like, birds, or, like... Like, the just, rain outside. Yeah, or, like, yeah. the, the the dripping from the ceiling and stuff like that. And it's so clever, because it puts you in the scene. And they put the score in as kind of almost a warning 
of something happening. And like there's that scene where the fucking door is opening and they're literally, they've got a shot on the door and you're like, why is the fucking door opening so creepy? And I'm like, it's not the door opening. It's the anticipation this, of what that, you're going to see behind the door. That scene is potentially one of the greatest switcheroos in movie history because you think she's escaped. And I've honestly, I've seen this film and I'd forgotten. Like I was like, well, she's fine. And then the door starts opening and I was like, oh fuck, like Mitsuko's behind the door. Like she's going to come like running at them. Like she's going to be stood there and like, oh my God, it's terrifying. And then, her, and then Iku-chan walks out of the apartment. Yeah. And you, it's the realisation in your brain of, oh shit, Mitsuko's in the lift with yeah. her already. Like she's carried Mitsuko into the lift thinking it was her daughter. Yeah. And that moment, I think, is one of the most tense moments in the film because it waits a good 30 seconds to a minute before it actually... Like, you know Mitsuko's in that lift, but you don't see her for like a minute. Yeah. You just can see... It's Iku in the hall and then her mum in the lift, like her yeah. face as she as she realises, oh shit. Yeah. And I think it's one of the tensest moments in this film and it's so perfectly done because you don't see it coming. No, it's very well done. It's so well done. Well, like that's the great thing about this movie. Excellent pacing and mm-hmm. excellent like use of tension. Because there are some really tense scenes in this movie. There's also, there's the great scene where Iku-chan is playing hide and seek. Mm-hmm. And she is hiding under a table. And you don't actually, you all you can see is uh, Mitsuko's legs and her little, the bottom of her yellow jacket. Mm-hmm. And then she stood, like, not that far away from Iku. And her water is just leaking from her body yeah and you can't see her face you can't like there's nothing terrifying in the scene it's just the bottom of her yellow coat her legs her shoes and then there's water pouring out from underneath her and it's terrifying mm-hmm. she is the creepiest kid to wear a yellow jacket this side of dead georgie and it but the thing is is though there's no reason for that scene to be scary no it's literally just but it's some because water. but it's it's again it's because your brain is conditioned by Western cinema to think, right, there's going to be a jump scare in a minute or she's going to hurt somebody or something's going to happen. That's why it's so interesting watching like foreign cinema, especially in the horror genre, because they put that there for the uh, for the image of, oh, fuck, you know she's evil and you know why the water's there, but we don't need to do anything else with this. Your brain will think... Fill in. Yeah, the yeah. blanks. Whereas, as I say, in the American version, she'd be fucking CGI, she'd have a fuck fucked up ghost face she'd go running at the kid or some shit so this is the really interesting thing because we only ever really get one clear look at mitsuko and that's as she attacks the mum yeah at the end of the film yeah and she's got the little grubby ghost she has grubby ghost hands but she doesn't really have a face she looks like the people once they've looked at the kid from the grudge like when her face is all like well no because it's it's not if her face is just kind of but it's really interesting because when you look at all of the posters of her throughout the film she doesn't have a face mm-hmm. in any of the posters. Mm-hmm. And she looks exactly like she does in the posters, which are all water damaged. Mm-hmm. So they've made... It's one of the really interesting things they do in this film because you never really know what Mitsuko looks like. You never actually see what she looks like. Mm-hmm. Bar she's got a yellow coat and she's a girl with long hair. Like You don't really see a lot. And it's the fact that the face you actually see at the end of the film is the face that is on all of the posters. That your brain doesn't really clock it until afterwards, and you're like, all of the posters were water damaged. Yeah, all of them. Mm-hmm. And she went missing on Bastille Day. She did. Nineteen ninety nine. 
But yeah, there's some like really interesting stuff that happens in this movie. And like, I think it's one of those movies, like, you look back at it now, it doesn't look 20 years old. No. Like, that's another thing I find really interesting about Japanese horror movies, is where they are also low budget and minimal effects. They don't ever really seem to age. No. They all kind of look the same. Mm. You can watch them at any... I like watching this on Blu-ray was really interesting. I think the only thing that really ages this film is there's not really any technology. No. And also there is a scene where the hus- the ex-husband is smoking indoors. Yeah, but I don't know if that's outlawed in Japan. Yeah, though. I'm pretty sure it is. They, they, I'm pretty confident in Japan they have specific smoking areas outdoors. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I think smoking indoors is, is uh, internationally bad. I'm going to look now. Mm. But I'm pretty sure no matter what, you would no longer be allowed to smoke inside a lawyer's office. Yeah, maybe. Do they still have smoking in bars in America? Nope. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, actually... I don't remember smoking in a bar when I was in America. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember it happening when I was over there. Because smoking got outlawed in the UK in 2007, didn't mm. it? Uh, not smoking in general, but smoking in like pubs and clubs and stuff. Um, but that was like... Uh, so as of 2020, apparently. Oh. Prohibit smoking indoors. Uh, this ex- The exceptions are private homes, hotel rooms, cigar bars, and some small-sized independent restaurants and bars that were opened before April 2020. There you go, then. I know there's some... Yeah, so Japan has a, traditionally has outdoor smoking regulations with lenient indoor smoking regulations. It is frowned upon to smoke in the streets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm pretty sure in Japan they have like specific smoking areas. I think if that's for a lot of um, Asia. They have like yeah. specific areas you can smoke I still find outside. it really weird, though, like especially in Portsmouth and a couple of places where we've been... Where there's like still clubs and in pu- Portugal, no Portsmouth. Mean? Like oh. I'm talking in the UK. Okay, there's still like clubs and pubs that will have in the toilets like the vending machines that have cigarettes in them. Like they're not they're very few and far between. But I still think it's like they they clearly just haven't because Removing. they they have the vending machines that are like multi-purpose ones. They've got like condoms in cigarettes. Like, other things yeah. for, like, women. Like, I don't know what the ones in the female toilets have. Tampons, pads. Yeah. Toothbrushes, normally, yeah. which is weird. And they've, like, obviously, since since smoking got outlawed over here in indoors, like, 14, 15 years ago, mm. they've just not updated their vending machines. And also since the age changed as well. Yeah. Because it used to be 16 in the UK and yeah. it's now 18. Because there used to be those pubs, because I'm pretty sure... You used to be able to go, just go to the toilet in a pub and get a pack of cigarettes. When I used to work at the Deco, I'm pretty sure when I... In their basement, they had one of the old cigarette machines. They still have it. Oh, I love it. Because they had it in the pub, and then they took it out, but they just never got rid of it. It's still... Or when I was working there a few years ago, it was buried in the basement, and it was just like it's had all the pricing and all the different cigarettes and stuff on it. Because it's mental to now... Like, I don't know why we've suddenly got this topic, but it's mental now to think about it because when I used to go out quite a lot in my early 20s, I'd go to... We'd go to the pub after work and everybody would be smoking. Yeah. And then, like, overnight, it almost was like... And it's, nope. like, it's another one of those things, like, people have just got used to it. Like, yeah. it's hard to imagine a time now when, when people could, could do it. Yeah. Um, because we've come so far away from it. And, obviously, it's, like, one of those things... 
it's like one of those things it's like a generational thing like there is a generation of kids that will, that have been born or will be born that like don't know what VHS players are they don't know what smoking in a bar is like because they've never they'll they'll never yeah, experience it. It's like, one of those interesting things. But yeah, I can't remember in um, America what the law is or in Florida specifically. But um I know when I was at Universal, um there is designated smoking area, smoking areas like you're not allowed to smoke in the park. Yeah. You have to go to designated smoking areas within the park. Yeah. Which is fair because obviously it's a family park, but Yeah. Obviously, there were places where you couldn't smoke inside. Like, you never used to be able to smoke in cinemas. I don't think that's ever been a thing. I don't think that's changed. Were you still. not? No, I don't think so. Pretty sure you used to be able to smoke in cinemas, babe. You used to be able to smoke in offices. Yeah, but cinemas are different. Like, I don't think, you, I don't think you've ever been allowed to smoke in a cinema. Or at least as far as I know. But that could be me. Yeah, so anyway. <laughs> I feel like we've just got a, a real big tangent about, like, the smoking thing. Um, for no reason. I'm just going to look now. Because I know you smoke on aeroplanes, so I can't see why you're able to smoke in... Yeah, you smoke smoke in cinemas. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't remember that. Well, like, in the actual screens? Yeah. I don't remember that. I mean, it was a long time ago that the uh, the band came in in cinemas. Like, before you were born. I was going to say, that's really fucked up. I was going to say, I don't uh, think in our up lifetime... Up until the 70s. I was going to say, I don't think in our lifetime we've ever been it. That's what I was saying. Like, yeah, but you smoke like, you know, aeroplanes, you smoke to smoke, you smoke in offices. Because I work with somebody who, we've had the conversation, she's, she's like, yeah, I used to sit at my desk and, like, at work, with, like, smoking while I, I was at, doing an office Shit, job. Shit, man. That's yeah. weird. It's so weird. Like, the one I don't miss, and I'm really glad it got outlawed, was gigs. Because it used to piss me off being stood at a gig in a crowd and there'd be like people around you smoking. Oh, yeah. And like, obviously when people crush, you get fag ash all over your top and you'd end up with like fucking cigarette burns in your clothes because people are like trying to mosh and they've got a beer in one end and a cigarette in the other. And I just... Yeah, I remember. I remember my first ever gig was <coughs> still smoking doors and they were smoking inside. Could... It was really weird because it was a swimming pool as well. Yeah. You could do it obviously at festivals, like outdoors yeah. and stuff, but like people yeah it's, it's a weird one but i don't know how we got on this topic like, no it's because the guy was smoking in the movie yeah, and I was yeah. like it really ages it because like that for me as for, for, for a uk citizen like people smoking indoors i think always ages films for me because i'm like you cannot do that you have not been able to do that for a very long time do you know the one thing that i always when i look back at it it's the one that does it for me is when we whenever we and I don't know how popular this show is in america so we may be alienating our audience it's whenever we watch gavin and stacy because there's so many things that are specific to that time that mm. age that show. Like, I think it's the first episode when him and Smithy go to that fucking Spoons. Mm. When they meet up with Stacy and Nessa. And they're in, like, a Lloyd's bar that's got Fruity Machine. A fucking... It's got a cigarette machine. They're all sat at the table smoking, drinking Aftershock. Which they don't fucking sell anymore. Because <laughs> it's basically paint thinner. Yeah. And you're just like... I think it's one of them drinking a Bacardi Breezer as yeah, well. Yeah. Which is not a thing anymore. No. I don't think. And it's like... I, like I used to love Bacardi Breezer when I was a teenager. The fashion, the phones, and the like smoking in the bars is what really ages that show for me. Because every time I look back at that show, I'm like, this is so 2007. Yeah. But the interesting thing with this movie... Yeah. Is that there's not a lot of technology in it. So no. it's really difficult to actually date the film. Yeah. Because there's like no technology. They've got a landline phone mm-hmm. and when she goes for her interview, 
they have desktop computers but i don't think you get a clear shot of the desktops either i think it's just like a passing shot <clears throat> yeah and also you never get a sense of what part of japan the movie is set no. in because you never like whenever they're outside they're never in a busy street they're never in like a metropolitan area so no. you couldn't say that it's like tokyo or anywhere like that you never see like any public transport you very rarely see anybody else around it seems like it's set on what would i guess would be kind of a council estate over here it's set in like this apartment block that's on the edge of a city somewhere where like you don't really see anyone else you don't really see any cars buildings like any sort of public transport or anything like that um the only real buildings you see are the office where she goes to have the lawyers the place where she works the school and her house or the apartment and that's it and then obviously in the flashbacks you see other bits as well and the girl is like there and, <coughs> and that's another really interesting thing as well is all the scenes with mitsuko in that are the flashbacks are all like a sepia yellow tone mm. it's the same color as her coat whereas everything in the present day has all of the color pulled out of it <coughs> and it creates a really interesting contrast between the the scenes that her are her flashbacks and i guess her ghost origin story and then what is happening in the parallel present day timeline yeah it's really interesting and also the thing as well excuse me <coughs> oh excuse me very is you never know at what time period the film is actually set in because mm. we know that she went missing in 1999 but we have no frame of reference. Two, for two how. years. So, so they say in the film so that she was missing two years ago. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so apparently, the film was filmed in uh, Yokohama, which is, I think, a very. It's a city, but it's not like a capital. <clears throat> um, it's here, so it's not even near Tokyo. It's way out on the edge over yeah. here it's by kawasaki mm -hmm. there's tokyo there's kanagawa mm -hmm. so yeah it looks like it was filmed here yeah so it's a city with like a lot of outskirts mm -hmm. and one of the things you were saying didn't you mention that once the movie had come out the um well once the elise lamb thing happened didn't you say the fit the show <gasps> Oh, the film had got more notoriety because of it, because of the yeah, so connection since, that people so had made. But a few people had obviously made the connection between the Elisa Lam case and Dark Water, the film, back when the case originally happened in 2013. And then in 2020, the Cecil Hotel documentary got released on Netflix, and there was like a whole new vigour of like, oh my god, it's like that film, Dark Water, it's like exactly like what happens in Dark Water. And I get it. But also obviously, it's one of those weird ones because I've always I've always found the Elisa Lam case very interesting. But at the same point, it is a real person. There's something really horrific happened to. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it kind of all got dredged back up again. I mean, this, the documentary would have dredged it up either way. Yeah. But yeah, the connections to Dark Water got dredged back up. And there's a lot of people who are like, oh, is it based on the Elisa Lam case? And, I, and then you're like, well, no, because it was 11 years yeah, previous. Yeah, it predates it by over a decade. Like, but it, it's one of those really strange and interesting cases of like life imitating art, I guess. Because there's multiple things in this film, like the lift 
there's the scene in the lift where she's like ducking her head out and like checking mm-hmm. either side when they stop on um, level four. Yeah. Which is very reminiscent of the security footage of Elisa Lam in the lift at the Cecil yeah, Hotel. Yeah, because the, the, uh, my... Uh, like, so, excuse me if I'm wrong in saying this because I don't I know very little about the case. Yeah. But no one ever see and you don't see her on the footage actually exit the lift, do you? Um. Yeah, you do. Um. She she leaves the elevator as normal. I think on the top floor, if I remember correctly. Um. I haven't. I've saw the documentary when it came out two years ago. Um. But you don't see anyone else. Like it look. It always looks like she's looking at somebody else when she's like stepping out of the lift. But you never mm. actually see anybody in the footage. Um, but obviously, um, yeah, the, the, uh, similarities between this film and the Elise Lamb case are... So what did they determine it was then? Did they determine... Uh, accidental death. What, that she'd climbed into a water tank? So again, very similar to this movie, uh, she'd clambered in t- potentially drunk. Well, she was, she, um, was off her meds at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they think she'd have climbed in accidentally and then couldn't get back out. And they found her, didn't they? Uh, yeah, but not for a while after she disappeared. It took them quite a while to find her. Holy moly. Yeah, but because there's... There's, there's interviews with people who were staying in the hotel at the time. And who she, she obviously she passed away and was in the water tank, I think, for maybe a month or so. And people were drinking the water in the hotel. Which again happens in this film. You you look really saddened by that. Man, that's just fucked up though, isn't it? Like it's really, it is it's, fucked up. Like And it's the fact that it took her so long to find it and also, um, they were never very clear for a really long time on what the outcome of the case was mm-hmm. because there's been numerous conspiracy theories over all the years and everyone's always like, Oh well they never really solved it. The the case was closed. Yeah, because there was rumours that they were gonna make a film about it. Yeah, which I'm glad they didn't because it's it's really, like her family is still, you know. Yeah, because that was one of the things I was going to ask: and... was did she have family? Like, or yeah, was it a case had... that she was like? Because yeah. they said that a lot, like the Cecil Hotel has a really fucked up history. It has they said yeah. a lot of like because it's kind of part of the basis that and H. H. Holmes's murder hotel are part of the basis for the American Horror Story season. Um, I think they filmed some of um, hotel in the Cecil the Hotel, yeah, or um, stay on Main as it's yeah. called now. It's split in two. I don't know if it still is, but it was split into it used to be called. It was the Cecil, and then it was also the Stay on Main. But they said that Richard Ramirez stayed there, yes, didn't they? Yes, Richard and Ramirez like, stayed there during of, the, the height of his murders as well. Like, a bunch of other serial killers, yeah. like, met up there and... It has well, a really yeah. sordid... It's it's a, it's a hotel in Skid, Skid Row, though, so it was always going to have a really sordid history, no matter what. Mm-hmm. I think it's just the amount of horrible things that have happened at this hotel. It has kind of taken on a life of its own, but to she, a degree. I'm trying to I'm trying to word this question as yeah. sensitively as possible. She doesn't haunt the hotel, does she? Have they said they ever said that the hotel yeah. is haunted or because it, it's one of those things that gets brought up every so often about the hotel maybe being haunted, and it wouldn't surprise me in all honesty. A lot of bad things have happened because there. I think that was the angle that they were going to go with with the film yeah, was no, that she was going to pass away and they were going to try and 
give it do, a supernatural do a dark edge. water version kind, of kind yeah. of yeah like a supernatural um, no, edge to it no i think it's just one of those things with this film like this film though and it, it is weird like looking at it retroactively of like that having happened the similarities between yeah, the two are it's such a very specific thing to like yeah and it's, it's the fact that it's the specificity like, down to the water tank which is a weird <laughs> subplot like a plot point anyway and then for it to actually happen in real life but you know, it was it was just something really horrible that happened to a very unfortunate young girl. Mm. And um, I think it's one of those really horrible cases as well where I don't think it ever really gets the respect. She doesn't get the respect she deserves. It's become kind of a sideshow to a degree. Yeah, she's become... She's kind of become a folklore sort of legend. Yeah. And, like, there's that fucking video on YouTube and so many of people her, have seen uh, the video YouTube. Well, the, the police like that, released that footage. That's fucked up as well. I think they were trying to find out what had happened because it was before they knew what had happened to her and they were trying to figure out where she'd gone mm. and they were hoping somebody would recognise her. Or... I will say, though, having seen the YouTube footage, the YouTube footage is fucking chilling. Like, it's, it's really well scary. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Um... But I think I think the, at the end of the day, it was just a very unfortunate thing that happened to a woman who was unwell mm. and she has kind of become a sideshow to a degree, yeah. which is really sad. But yeah, I think the the you can't really talk about this film without addressing the fact that it is exceedingly similar. It does kind of bug me though that people go, "Oh man, like let's watch this film or let's talk about this film" because it could also be like, "Oh look how connected it is to this fucked up thing." And I'm like, it's weird that people's brains do that. Like people's brains hear of a tragedy and then they go, "Oh well, it's like this thing that happened." And it's like, well, I remember reading the book. I remember reading the short story for the first time. My brain literally went, holy fuck, like, when was this written? Because I, I, I honestly thought it had been written after it had happened. Yeah. And they based the story on, which I read it after, you know, mm-hmm. Asa Lamb's case had happened. So obviously that's a perfectly valid connection to yeah. make. And it was really weird to find out that it was written like 15 years previous. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's crazy. It's insane. But yeah. I don't think there's much, much more to say on this film, is there? No, not really. I think, like, one of, the, one of the, the things I love about this film is how well it stood the test of time. Like, it doesn't lose any of its edge, but I think a lot of Japanese horror movies and Asian extreme films don't lose their edge. Yeah. Um, a lot of them age really well, and especially with stuff that's happening nowadays, because... Some of them are like techn- more technologically advanced when you get into your things like your pulse and your shutter and your fucking uh, cell and all that sort of stuff. When they talk about cell phone technology and like evil computer viruses and things, it's a bit more like, oh, holy shit, you guys were well ahead of the game on this. But like, I think something like this, it's just the thing is, the Japanese culture has always been so far ahead of everybody else when it comes to like that art and like the way that they weave their own mythology into things. And I think the fact that they managed to create such tight, claustrophobic, terrifying things out of the smallest, like, things is what I'm always most impressed by. Yeah. And another thing, very, very minimal to or like, no gore. This movie's got no blood in it. Mm. This is a bloodless film, yet it's still fucking terrifying. It's the same as The Ring. There's, like, no blood in The Ring. And The Ring's fucking scary as shit. Yeah. And, like, that's what I love about it. It's, like, it's all about, like... I mean, don't get me wrong. If you want to watch some fucked up shit with some blood in there, you can find that in Japan. Like, go go hit your boy Takashi Miike up. But I think that's the most impressive thing. And I think that's why I picked this movie. 
was because when you look at everything else we've done, like everything we've done this month so far has been different to everything else. Like Pan's Labyrinth was quite a violent film. But then Brotherhood of the Wolf was also quite violent. But they were both very artistic and they were both very like culturally significant to the areas that they came from. Yeah. And like you look at a film like Train to Busan, again, another film that was quite violent, but it had more like uh, Western ideals to it. It was more of a westernized kind of uh, film. But then you look at this and it goes back to like Japanese folklore and Japanese folk tales and those old campfire tales of like, like we we said, water ghosts or like the, the is it toilet ghost? The, the one that appears in the toilets um, that we discussed previously, yeah. like those kind of ghosts, and like yeah. the, the, the wailing kind of ghosts and things like that. But they, they managed to put this like modern edge on it. And I think, as you said, like the terrifying things from this are like, being a parent and like separation anxiety and losing a child, which I think anybody with children or anybody that knows anyone with children or being a child and being separated from your parents can relate to. But then it's also wrapped up in this really tense ghost mystery as well. Yeah. So it does a lot of things on a lot of levels, which I think is why the movie works so well. And looking at it 20 years on, I'm actually really fascinated now to go back and watch some of the other movies from that period. And kind of look at like how well The Ringer stood up or The Grudge or like any of those other movies that we mentioned. Because horror, the face of horror and the face of like Asian cinema and Asian culture within the realm of horror has yeah. changed so much in the last 20 years. Yeah. It would be interesting to go back and see if those all of those movies do still hold up now. Or if they have become so memed to death that you can't watch them anymore because once you've seen them parodied by Scary Movie and oh, yeah. SNL and things like that, can you oh, really yeah. go back and watch The Ring again and it still be scary? Probably not. But I'd be interested to to kind of... Maybe at some point we'll just do an all-Asian month and we'll just watch a load of Asian cinema and J-horror and stuff and see how well it's stood up. If that's something you guys are interested in, let us know and we'll try and hook it up at some point. But what is your final thoughts and your score on Dark Water? Um, I really enjoy this film. I think it's done the test of time really well. I think it's an interesting story. Um, I'm going to give it a solid four. Four out of five. Four out of um, five axes. Yeah, I'm going to give it a 4.5. There are a couple of things that niggled on me when I watched it this time, but it wasn't enough to take away my enjoyment of the film. Um, I still think it's really fucking good and everything I just said. I still think it's one of the better J-horrors and I, I definitely think that... If if you're someone who wants to watch this movie and you're not bothered by subtitles, definitely watch this movie. If you're like one of those people that's like, I'll watch the American version, don't. Don't watch the American version. Mm. Don't do it to yourself. It's fucking terrible. Just suck it up. Read the subtitles and just watch the fucking like, Japanese version. Trust me, you will get way more out of it. So yeah, that's our thoughts on Dark Water. <clears throat> We are wrapping up Foreign Language Horror Month next week with our final episode of the month, which is going to be on the Russian vampire film Nightwatch. We are very, very excited about this one. So join us next week when we look at Nightwatch um, and we wrap up January. Um, go back if you haven't caught up yet. Go back and listen to our previous episodes from this month that we mentioned earlier in the episode. As always, you can find us on social media, S-I-M-A-H-F-Pod on Twitter. So I'm Married a Horror Fan, all one word, all lowercase, Tumblr and Instagram. And if you have the time, Spotify does allow you to rate podcasts. Now, if you want to go find our podcast on Spotify, just underneath our title, there is a little 
circle that has a five and a star in it. If you tap on that, you can give us a rating. Any ratings would be greatly appreciated. Same with Apple Podcasts. If you want to go and rate us over there, by all means, please do. Every little helps. We appreciate every single one of you that supports us. Um, and thank you once again for supporting us. Um, don't forget, next month, we are looking at family-friendly horror, but we will give you some more details on that in next week's episode. Uh, for now, stay safe, stay spooky, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Bye. Bye.